Welcome back to this week's episode of Africa as a Country Talk. Um, if you've been watching, this is episode nine. After today's episode, we'll go on a little break for three weeks um, for our usual summer break. Um, if you live in the Northern Hemisphere, this is a good time to decompress, which I'm not sure how you're doing it. Um, for some people in some parts of the world, um, given that we're in the middle of a pandemic, but in some places, luckily, we're over some of the worst of it. Um, so we will be back with new episodes from the first week of September. Um, and these first couple of episodes have been about experimenting with the format and seeing what works and doesn't work. And we want to thank you for sticking with us um, on this journey. But to today's program, uh, we've left the best for, for last. And today we are going to talk about African football. And we have three guests, and Will's going to properly introduce them in a minute. Uh, they are Marta Saavedra, um, uh, Maher Mahazi, who's who's not here at the moment, but he's going to join us in a couple in in couple of few, in a few couple of minutes, and in Jabulo and Gidi, um, and as I said, we're going to talk African football. Just a just a quick comment on the three week break and what we in the global south use it for. I'm certainly going to use it to try and get better internet, um, but until then, we've got a fantastic show for you guys today. Sean was was putting it out there for you. We're talking football, and our three guests are some fabulous people. First of all, we've got Matra Saavedra, who is an associate director of the Center for African Studies at the University of California in Berkeley. She has done research, research on gender, development, and sport in various African countries. She most recently worked on a collaborative project in sport and development in Cape Verde, Nepal, and Timor-Leste and on African athletic migration to the European Union. She has been on the editorial boards of various journals, such as Sock and Society, Sports and Society, the Sociology of Sports Journal, as well as Mpumalelo, the Interdisciplinary Journal of Sports in Africa. She's also on the board of Sport Africa and Soccer Without Borders, and she also played football, or at least I think she still does. And if she does, I'd be interested to know what position she plays in. <laughs> Um, and she also coaches boys' soccer teams, which is, which is awesome. Um, our second guest today is not with us yet. He will hopefully be joining much later in the program. Uh, Maher Mahazi is an Algerian football writer. He's based in Algiers. He especially covers football in North Africa. His work has been widely published. And he just started doing these videos on his YouTube channel, which you should all check out. His most recent video... Uh, which you should all especially watch, is called Why Are There No African Coaches in Europe's Top Football Leagues? The nine and a half minutes are definitely worth it. If it's a question you've also been wondering, which I certainly have. We will also ask him about that later, by the way. And then finally, we are joined by Njabulon Gidi, who is the recipient of the 2018 Journalists Journalist of the Year Award at the South African at the SAB Sports Media Awards. He writes stories that reveal the person behind the athlete. Originally from Durban, he has written for The Citizen, The Star, and The Sunday Times since 2009, and he is currently the sports editor of New Frame. Welcome, guys. Yeah, so as we've said, we, we're still waiting for um, Maher to join us later in the program. Um, he had some technical difficulties, but he promised that he, it will be in a couple of minutes he'll join us. But I think, so what we'll do is we're gonna try and like divide the program into like, almost if you want like two halves, um, football. I mean, that that's a easy pun. Um, <laughs> I heard that there are people who would like to make turn football into, I think I read somewhere about four quarters, 
I think there was an abandoned attempt in the in the U.S. to do that. I, I might think when the when the MLS first started in the mid '90s, somebody thought it was a great idea that maybe football consisted of four quarters. I don't know whose idea that was, but in any case, it's a game of two halves. And what we want to do is we want to discuss. Uh, we'll take the, the food, men's football and then we'll talk about uh, women's football. Um, it's not that we're relegating women's football. We just had a toss up and we, we decided we'll go with men's football first. So the first question, maybe we should we should um, start by asking our guests um, how they would describe the game, the, the African, the state of, of African football, of men's African football in general. Like if they could just kind of both give us like their assessment of, and perhaps as part of their answer, if you could also say something about um, whether there are certain regional, I mean, if it's if it's the same in every region, when you make that assessment about the Martin, do you want to start it? Right. Um, sure. I mean, in terms of men's football, and I, I'm, I will say um, with COVID right now, everything seems to be on hold. We're kind of waiting for things to sift out and understand uh, where we are. We, we certainly um, do see a lot of male African football players um, in the top of football worldwide, you know, Sadio Mane, uh, Mo Salah, you can tell I'm a little Liverpool <laughs> special there, but um, they, you know, they they definitely are making um, themselves known. Their soccer talent, to be sure. It's the same old problem, though, that the the success in in Europe, in particular, seems to be sucking the life out of African football as a whole, um, uh, and that um, it's very hard. Um, it, it has to do with money. It has to do with organization. Um, you know, there are. Um, Certainly leagues like in South Africa, um, there's foreign players that go to South Africa to play in, in the South African leagues. And, um, you know, in, in Northern um, Africa, there's some very vibrant leagues and, and there still are community, um, there's community football. And I think the difference between the, the Bass and the, the elite is, is something that um, we also want to pay attention to is that this is that kids um, and, and many people will be playing football on a regular basis, you know, in any pickup field. So, so it permeates everywhere. And, and I think that uh, it's, it's people's life experience that football is such a part of it. So um, how do we, you know, I, I think maybe coming out of the COVID period, it, it, if anything, it'll give a chance to reassess and, and possibly make some changes, but you know, it's not like one person's decision to make changes. It's it's a multifaceted problem. Mm -hmm. And Jabulo? For me, African football looks a lot like the, the state of the continent in that there's quite a lot of talent and most of the talent shines bright in, in Europe. And when you look at the minerals that the continent has, quite a lot of them shine outside of the continent, even though they produce here. And I think to an extent, uh, the state of African football looks like that. Some of our best players are playing their trade in Europe, and that's where they achieve them quite, quite a lot. And back home, I mean, there's quite a lot of challenges in the respective leagues, where whether it ad either administratively or, or financially. But with that said, I mean, there are some that are really producing exciting football and some some quite uh, remarkable players. I mean, I think the, the North African still reigns supreme in the continent 
where you you look at the number of Champions League that have been won by North African teams, even in the Kev Confed Cup, there is that that dominance by them. I think some of the challenges are, are things that that could be addressed with mm-hmm. better leadership and and more finances. Do you do you think that there uh, just before Will? I think Will might Will may have a question, but I just want to ask a quick follow on. Um, there's there's an argument to be made that as you, you pointed out, the North African teams dominating the uh, African competitions, club competitions, and including continental competitions. I mean, Egypt, I think, has won the most um, African Cup of Nations. Um, is it? Might it be? And, and Egypt might be an exception because its league, I think, is it's often shut down by the you know whoever whatever military regime is in power. But might the North African success be because they have? Um, if you want working leagues, like they have actual club competitions with infrastructure, with money. And similarly, uh, the other from the South, South Africa has had, I think, at least two teams have won the, the Champions League competition. And South Africa has like a, you know, it has one of the richest leagues in Africa. Does that have something to do with, if, if you have to make an assessment of African football, since we're saying like, you know, everybody leaves, that the best thing you can do is go play in Europe. Um, are, are there some exceptions that we can name when we make that kind of assessment? Um, any, any? There are some exceptions who've stayed in the continent and have shine. I mean, one big example is Mohamed Abutrika, who's one of the greatest footballers of this generation. And he was, I mean, he he enjoyed his best football in Alali. And he's a, a beacon of of football in the continent. So there are some players who've, who've really made a name for themselves. I think in South Africa, because of the financial muscle, it's not worth going to play in the Scandinavian league, for instance, because you would be getting more or less the same kind of money that you get back home. So for them, it's not worth going to play in those European leagues. You can stay at home, enjoy home comfort, and while still getting quite a, a good salary. And I think one of the good things that, happens in North African is how much they, they're able to, to keep their talent. I mean, you look at Egypt, Morocco, and that's why even uh, for a longest period that the core of their national teams was players who were based in the country. There was a good understanding, and I think that's partly why they've been such dominant forces, I mean, especially with Egypt. Mm-hmm. Martin, do you want to add anything? or? Um. Yeah, I think there. It, it is interesting how there seems to be, you know, in North Africa and, and, and South Africa, sort of the top and the bottom um, geographically, these these options for people to play at home, um, and I, I, you know, we just we we talked about the decolonization of a lot of different things, and and this is it's a progress. But when you talk about an individual making a choice, it is super hard. Um, and I know we're going to talk about women's football soon, but um, it, it, you know, you even see this for women who are finding you know options to play in Turkey or Israel or Scandinavia, and who's going to tell them no if you know this is an option to get competition? And I think you know, as as someone who has played uh, soccer not at a high level, I played in college and then in recreational, you know, um, and it, that was lots of fun. Yeah, that's a high level than I did. So that's a high level. <laughs> well, I can talk about the whole college thing at a different level, a different time. But um, uh, you know, you want competition, and and competition makes you stronger. And you want good coaching. You want good fields. Um, you want good equipment. Uh, you, and um, 
you know, we've, uh, the, the technical capabilities that, you know, I mean, when I, when I have played soccer recently, um, even the people that are 20 years younger, I mean, they're younger than me, but they also, um, the, they, there's so much more ability to, to coach people and get the best out of them that if you're, if you are an athlete, that's what you want. You want some, you know, the know-how. So that's part of it too, is to bring, to bring back that know-how to the continent. And I have to say that I've met some excellent coaches on the African continent. And I think that, um, you know, we talk about players, but we really need to support the infrastructure on the continent um, to, of, of people and, and, and places, um, you know, and, and creative ways of making things happen. And I can, I can talk more about some of the creative things that I have seen across the continent to, to work on this. So maybe to ask a, a follow-up question, which relates to all of the points that you guys have raised just now. Uh, first of all, uh, Martha, what position do you play? And I am actually <laughs> curious about that. Um, but yeah. I think secondly, and more generally, I mean, we spoke about how, you know, it seems that North Africa has a thriving domestic league. So I'm curious to know, how has COVID impacted that? Because most countries have had to shut down or suspend their domestic leagues. And I think most African countries have done that with the exception of Burundi. So how has COVID impacted football in these countries? And it's an interesting time, especially to think about individual choices as, as Martha was describing, because the transfer market is going to begin in some places and some leagues have restarted, others haven't, players have got big decisions to make. And then it's interesting to begin the discussion about the nature of domestic leagues, because when we think about the strength of a country's footballing, in Africa especially, we associate it with national team performance, um, how well you do in a World Cup. Do we think that's still an accurate barometer of, of determining how strong a country's footballing is? Um, or what is the best way to, to to probably understand that um okay so some of your questions got broken up there but I, I will say so when i was a kid i started playing um left half and that was way back in the 70s when uh, there was very little known about um, some of the, the formations on the field these days but when um i guess you can say when i retired which was uh, a couple years ago after a knee injury um the the, the positions that i played i, I really like to play the one that i i, I make in my head is is a, a left wing back. Um, so if I have enough energy to run up and down the field, I love that, and I love uh, you know and and to to come in from the sides and to push it back and forward. I will say um, I was never really trained for it, but when I became a coach, I had to learn how to um, coach goalies, and I just found it fascinating. I think the psychology of goalies is fascinating. So. When I was on the last women's team that I was on, um, we didn't have a goalie. So I would volunteer to be in the goalie and I was able to put into practice all these things that I had been trying to coach my kids in. And I just loved it. And I actually got complimented even when we lost terribly by another coach. It's like, you're such, you you did a, such a good job at a goalie. So that to me was one of the heights when, you know, he was a, a, a coach from England who came, you know, they come over here and they make a lot of money coaching Americans who think the English know a lot about football. So anyway, I, I took that as a compliment. So yeah, um, that's my, <laughs> me. Um, but I think, um, you know, okay, so there was a question about COVID. And um, I, I guess I, 
you know, it's hard to keep up with all the different leagues and things going on. Um, what I do know is is that at the at the youth level, at um, you know, in, in various organizations, um, they are actually still active and they're coming up with sort of um, COVID safe types of activities. So you can't have games, for instance, but you might have training where you have a few kids wearing masks um, and, uh, you know, still kicking the ball around. And I, I just got a picture from one of my coaches in Rwanda that I'm in touch with, my coaches, my friend who's a coach in Rwanda. And she just, I mean, literally, as we were talking, sent the picture and the kids are out in the field and they're, um, they're not wearing masks, but they're, they're doing some training in the field. So um, I know it's happening. <laughs> um, so, yeah, and, and it's hard with kids. You gotta, they gotta do something. Um, there was another question about national teams and metrics. And, um, you know, this is a tough one. And I think, um, of course, uh, you know, rankings and things uh, are, are all there. But um, when, you, when you see some of some clubs who, you know, they're just happy to win a game, they're happy to score a goal sometimes. And, you know, even they may be beaten by, you know, huge numbers, but if they've actually advanced, and I think, um, and I'm going to jump to East Timor, which is not in Africa, I know, but in some ways has the same problems. But I, when I was talking with some um, of the women's players there, um, they felt like that from year to year, just um, uh, making progress and, and losing by less <laughs> was progress. And they felt that they should be somehow recognized for the fact that they were making improvements. So um, that's it's an internal metric, maybe. But I think that's, um, you know, just having a plan and working through it over time to um, improve the state of soccer in the country. It's a long you know, pipeline issues and all the rest. But if you can over time, just to have increments of improvement, that that should be a really good metric because when you have tons of money and great equipment and, and you know, you can ask for anything, well, of course you're successful. Um, I think to be successful with minimal resources is actually the, you know, the greater human challenge. And Zabula, do you have, uh, because I, I think maybe it might be useful of you to say something here um, because South Africa, I think is the one of the big leagues, South Africa is the one league that I think is restarting next week, right? And I um, and I think there is a there is a debate in South Africa that people would like football to come back, in the same way that people have sort of had similar debates here about the NBA, um, and in England with the with the Premier League, um, and in Germany with the Bundesliga. Do you want to say something about yes. the in South Africa? The, in South Africa, football is going to come back on the 8th of August. Uh, the teams are going to be based, like all 32 teams from the two divisions, the top flight and first division, are all going to be based in Gauteng, uh, where there's going to be a bubble of, of some sort, I think, like what the NBA is doing. And they're going to try and finish the season there. It's, it's been a bit tricky because Gauteng is the epicenter of COVID-19 at the moment because it's the economic hub and the most populous province. So there've been questions in terms of the choice of venue that why is Gauteng being the one chosen to, to do this when you look at the numbers. But the challenge is that Gauteng is the most infrastructure. I mean, them and only KZN would be the ones that would have enough to, to host 32 teams and play across the, the province with the, 
because the last two rounds have to play at the same time. I think the, the challenge with, with COVID is that the impact of it is not going to be felt now. I think uh, with us, I mean, there was that, that gap since the lockdown started in March and now football is coming back. I think the impact of COVID is going to be felt in the years to come because companies are cutting costs. I mean, they've quite been quite a lot of, of retrenchments. So I think with us, because the reliance is not really much on, on, on gate takings because yeah. the biggest part of, of the finance that goes to clubs comes from the, the sponsorship, the TV broadcast deal. So they've been able to get a, a huge portion of their money without playing. And I think that the biggest test is going to be post-COVID in terms of how many brands and, and companies are going to be investing in the sport because of how much cuts that they've had to make with everything that they've endured. And there are some measures that are being put in place to ensure that there's a safe return of, of football. Um, just to sort of like, and I, and I know we, we, we've, we, of course, we, we very, we, we noticed that COVID is, is definitely um, messing, if you want, with the organization of football and, you know, how football is going to develop further ahead. But it is the case that the way that football is organized globally and how Africa feeds into that ecosystem is that the best footballers and the revenue, and I think Marta sort of alluded to this as like, often players have no other choice, is that that is kind of located in Europe. Um, is that model of football, and again, we, we're making a distinction, of course, here between amateur, we're talking about professional football now. Is that model of football sustainable? That's the one part of the question, and you can answer that. And related to that, um, if you if you if you want to change that and the kind of the buzzword these days is that you know people say they would like to decolonize everything can you can you decolonize football can you decolonize that setup of men's football and i think we in a way we also talk about women's football already because women's football and we're going to get to the specifics of women's football but the way it's organized it's for african football it's worse um but the same kind of uh migration like if you're the best south african women's players i think there was a story the other day um, where the best South African footballers, and everybody's rejoicing because they were now going to go play for the best teams in Europe. Um, you know, for European clubs, they used to play for clubs in the US at a sort of slight lower level, um, but now they're going to go play for clubs in Spain, for clubs in England, and so on. So, is that model sustainable? Um, you know, specifically first in men's football, and then make some comments about women's football for me if you want. And how do you decolonize that? I mean, is is this it? Martha, do you want to go? Yeah. Um, how do you decolonize it? Oh, well, I mean, we've decolonizing a lot of things. We, we're in the academy, you, Sean, and you know, and decolonizing that is is a long road. Um, I I think um, it, it, you know, there's next week I'm going to be on something else, and I'm I'm supposed to talk about the 21st century Africa and the 21st century, and to some extent, it will be over time. Um, changes in demographics, um, potentially, you know, a growing middle class, uh, more economic development, um, you know, it's, it's larger economic uh, issues around, um, and, and not just money, but, um, you know, institutional know-how, you know, people who, um, so I do work on sport and development, you know, how can you use sport to um, solve social problems? And one of the debates that we have, or at least for me, is that, um, yeah, you can go out and, and say, use uh, football to try to tackle AIDS or COVID or something, you know, like that. 
but the actual fact of organizing football requires so um, so many skills that if you're actually training somebody to um, so for instance if you're if you're running a tournament that's um, a lot of work and I've seen um, so I've seen 16 year old girls um, go out and organize a tournament and they have to get the sound systems, they have to get the fields, they have to organize the referees. And the skills that they learn doing that are things that later on can result in so much. And so if if they are going, you know, if you're going to decolonize, um, to some extent, you 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 need to create your own space and, and not reference what's going on elsewhere. So I, I think that some of this may naturally happen over time. Um, you know, as you get aging populations elsewhere, there may not be, you know, a whole lot of European young people who are going to be playing football. It may be more African. So whether they're, you know, in Africa or Europe, um, there may be a, a sort of an African takeover, as it were, um, just because of, of that. But we're still, that's, you know, 25 years down the line. So I, I think some of it is a matter of time, but the point is to be intentional about it. And the point mm -hmm. is to really think, um, okay, what are the next steps we need to do both, uh, you know, individually or individually as a unit, if you're involved in a, a football club or an association, or if you're in charge, um, you know, and the interesting thing in, in Africa relative to, and, and uh, this may be true in many of the European countries as well, is how it's the government's involved. Um, here in the United States, you don't, you don't have that. You have the soccer federation, but the government really isn't involved. But the Ministry of Sports and how they um, they are involved in in trying to set up um, and and also in um, at least in many of the francophone countries it's still this amateur thing and you have these laws that organize the the associations um, or the um, these organiza you know organizations that are multi-sport organizations and football may be one of them like in Senegal for instance Jean d'Arc or um, some uh, um, ASFO or some of the other clubs that have both basketball and soccer and other kinds of things. So, you know, you need the, the this administrative talent, you need um, uh, the, you know, it's just a, a lot of things coming together to to make it something that people want to go to. And, and I do, and so I'm, I'm, I'm going to kind of go back and forth between men and women's football, but um, I was just reading an article about uh, a Gambian player, a female player on their national team. And for her, the big deal was to go play in Nigeria. You know, so, you know, she's not, I mean, maybe, you know, I mean, yeah, if she got the opportunity, she would go off. And, and there was a tragic story about the Gambian um, uh, national team goal player, uh, goal, goalie a couple of years ago who um, drowned in a migration. So she was on a boat that drowned. And there's plenty of athletes that have drowned as they've tried to, to cross the Mediterranean or over to the Canary Islands or something. But I, I think that... Um, to some extent, decolonization is a part of the question that we answer because we're always thinking about Europe. Well, okay, fine, you know, Europe there, but Nigeria is a big place. You know, I, I haven't really seen any good um, studies, and maybe it's just because I'm not in touch with them. There's are, there are a few people I know working on it, but um, what's going on in Nigerian football that's attracting other people, and including women's football? Um, and I, and you know, like let's just talk about it. And and yeah, there's some issues and whatever, but I think it's partly because we always focus on Europe. Um, you know, or maybe in the case of the United States, the NWSL for women's, you know, but like, let's, let's actually just spend time and we don't have to talk about Europe. Actually, there, I just wanna, but, you know. Yeah, I want to add to that. I think if you take, for example, in Southern Africa, um, South Africa has, has always been a league that has attracted the best footballers from Zimbabwe, from Mozambique. Mm -hmm. I mean, I think uh, 
I forgot his name now, but one of the best players from Mozambique. He played for a while for Jomo for Jomo Cosmos. I forget his name now, but he was incredible Tico football. Tico. Say his Tico. name again. Tico Tico Pugwan. Yeah, Tico 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 is an incredible. So, so your comment, I think your comment is actually well taken. That you, you can actually, with we do we sometimes we're doing it, like the 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 football the football has been dissented often in a way. I mean, the success I think often of TP Mazembe, which is this club in like the second city of Congo that has gone to the World Club Football Championships because it won the CAF Championship. So it's like. And they had made a concerted effort to build a club. Then, so some of the best Ghanaian players used to go play. So Ghana, Ghana would have like a World Cup roster, and you would spot there's like three or four TP Mazembe players on that on that roster. So you, your point is actually well. It's actually a good point that like instead of focusing so much on on Europe, maybe we we don't notice that there had been that been like a, a, a sort of an attempt to decolonize football and if we spend our energies there i mean it also has Njabula was i think he retweeted something i did the other day where i said i would like for the psl they're gonna have everybody looking at the psl maybe they should they should stream the football because what if you live somewhere else in the world which is what the koreans did before anybody else could watch football they streamed their football and if you lived when i, I was sitting in new york and i was watching the korean league and if i was the psl right now um, well, they have to compete with the Champions League, but until the Champions League starts, maybe what you could do is you could show, you could try and get all that football on on streaming services. But it's a good point. It's a good point that you um, that you're pointing out. Yeah. One thing, I mean, one thing I'm I'm always interested in. I mean, to to continue this discussion is is what are the prospects for for building a really continental footballing culture? Because I I look at the CAF Champions League, for example, Sean's just mentioned it. And I think to myself, this has a lot of potential to be a continental footballing spectacle, but it just never really seems like domestic footballing federations are investing all that much into trying and generating that. And I think that in the last couple of years, there's been revived interest as South African teams have started to perform well in it. But I think it feels like more can be done in order to try and really sort of strengthen continental football and, and encourage players to, to consider playing the DRC, consider playing in Egypt, consider playing in Ghana rather than, than wanting to go abroad. So, I mean, maybe the question of decolonization is, well, how do we build Pan-African football? How do we <laughs> Africanize or Pan-Africanize our, our footballing culture? I think that's a very interesting point of Pan-Africanizing uh, African football. I think that's one of the biggest challenge in that everyone sort of does their own thing in their own box. There's not much of of interconnections and, and intercommunications within. I mean, you would find that in Southern Africa, for instance, most people watch the, the PSL and, and then that's it. There isn't a lot. I mean, if it starts even in our TV, there isn't a lot of football that is not from your country, but that is continental. It's only the Champions League. I mean, there's some interesting uh, leagues in the continent. You look at Burundi, for instance, when they had that opportunity, they were the only league, the only football league happening in the world, but there wasn't any platform for an African outside of Burundi to watch that league. You look at the, the North African football, I mean, the answer, there isn't any platform outside of North Africa to watch that league in the continent. So I think one of the challenges that we have is that 
not being able to see each other. We only see each other when there's the Champions League. But it would one of ways of addressing this would have a platform where you can watch. I mean, you can switch from watching the Zambian league to go to watch Tanzania, and then after that, you watch the the Egyptian league. And I think that would sort of expose the continent to what is it out there? Because at the moment, I mean, most of the things that we know about each other, we know through playing in the CAF Champions League or when you have to research about that team and you're going to face them. So I think if, if we can have that way, a platform where we could be, have a bouquet of African football on our TV screens, I think that could go a long way in pan-Africanizing the game. And to maybe ask a follow-up here, I mean, in terms of trying to think about the reason that doesn't happen, is it the case because a lot of footballing leagues have adopted the commercialized model from the West, right? They're trying to, they're less interested in promoting a footballing culture continentally and more interested in promoting uh, a footballing culture that gives them a profitable business model. I mean, is it the case that, you know, uh, television networks and domestic footballing federations and leagues don't want to show us Kenyan football or Burundian football because they're worried that's not going to generate viewership. And if you don't generate viewership, you're not getting the sponsorship deals. And if you're not getting the sponsorship deals, you're, getting, you're not getting the profits. And, and if, we're, if, we're, if, if that's the case, in order to undercut that, is it a matter of, of saying, well, we need, to, we need to be thinking about football less as this commercialized profit maker and more as, as something that should be a public investment, something that serves much more you know, public interest purposes, both in the countries uh, where these leagues are and continentally for trying to promote those, those connections. Um, yeah, I, I will say um, it was interesting for me. Um, I, I finally, when I had some disposable income, I signed up for FUBU TV because they had uh, you know, streaming. And what, what excited me also was, um, in 2018, they had the African Women's Cup of Nations. It was being, I think, the BAN channel. So um, it was actually really fun to be able to watch that and to see it. I, I will say, though, it was an interesting experience. One day I was trying to watch as many games as I could, um, and this was uh, like in November, um, late November 2018. And I, I had tuned in, I had I put it on, but the screen was blank. And um, it turned out, I, you know, there was, I, I was able to do a, a live chat with the FUBU people and they figured it out and they got it going. But I, I realized that I, I might've been the only one watching it, <laughs> you know, so I don't know who else, you know, out there was complaining um, and, you know, what, I, I, there may be some other things that I don't understand about how they, they work. Maybe it was just my zip code that it didn't work in. But, um, but A, the, the streaming uh, options are really great. I mean, look at us today here. Um, what I also know, and is I think there were uh, some Kenyan women's um, games were being streamed on Facebook. And so, you know, somebody puts up the camera, sometimes it's an individual thing. So there are things out there. And I guess what I would love is if somebody could actually organize a list. I know that there's like live, you know, you can go to some place and where you can watch all the different games live, but, but they don't, they're not getting to some of the local leagues where people are streaming it, but how, you know, um, how do you find it? And um, it takes a lot of work, especially if you're busy to go find those things. So, you know, that's an, a need out there. If somebody wants to organize a good way of like web scraping and coming up with all of the, 
you know, where are these these being streamed? It might be momentary. It might be just one game. Um, but I, I, I think, yeah, it is you, it is an option. You want us to get into the into the streaming business now? <laughs> well, uh, maybe not maybe not us streaming, but at least identifying where it is well, you go to get that. Being the halfway house, like being the place where people like the way if you want like something like a live soccer TV, where you go every day and you see where matches are played, and you can be anywhere in the world. They adjust to your local time. So imagine you had something like that where you can just see all the games that are being played in Africa and the, the link where you can um, go find the stream. I want to ask one other question because I want us to, to, I want us to move a little bit onto women's football, but incorporate it into the general discussion. But the one question I have to ask by one of the viewers is asking, um, is, is the fact that African players are increasingly going to Asia, is that, is that, is that positive? Is that decolonizing? Not to put everything under the decolonize, or they go to Latin America. I know there's a long history. And Jabula um, remembers when Dr. Kumalo went to play in Argentina. I think he lasted like maybe uh, three or four games, and then he, and then he was out. But um, is that? I mean, can we? Can we? Can we, how? How should we look at that? Like you have African players, and Jabula smiling right now. You had African players going to play in Asia. You have African players going into into Latin America. Is that a form of decolonization? One of the one of the viewers is asking that. And might I add, interestingly, there's a lot of Latin American players I've noticed who are coming to play here. There are a lot of Latin American players in the the Premier Soccer League, which is which is an interesting development that I don't think we we think about. But yeah, go ahead and answer Sean's question. Um. I, I, just a quick story. So I, you, I mentioned that I was in East Timor doing some work and 20, it was in 2018 and I actually watched the World Cup, uh, the Men's World Cup there and it was like in the midnight. And um, while I was in East Timor and at that watching the game, I, I saw these Africans there. There were like 15 Ghanaians playing in East Timor. There was a couple, there was one guy from Cote d'Ivoire. There were also some Chileans and Latin Americans there. And so they would have a game um, they, they, they brought together all the internationals to play against the Timorese national team, preparing them to go to a tournament in, in Indonesia. Um, so I, it was it was fun to hang out with them and I would go running in the morning and run into them while they were doing their, their workouts in the morning. And I, I talked to them a bit, I, 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 it was not a research that I could do at the time, but I, I really wanted to learn more about how these, how these Ghanaians and why all these Ghanaians ended up in, in, in Timor, in Dili. Um, but, you know, the basic answer was their agents, their agents were finding options for them. Um, you know, and I know that they're in India, I mean, obviously China, but Vietnam, um, you know, they, they really are in many different parts of Asia. Um, I, I'm, you know, women too, women, women go play in, in other parts of the world. Um, I was in Bali actually, and I, I went to a Bali United game, which was a great game. Um, and both teams had African players. And one of the guys had um, become, had taken on Indonesian citizenship, had married an Indonesian wife, had learned the local language, you know, and um, so is it decolonization? Or I think maybe one way of thinking about it is, you know, Africans is global. Um, and, but the really question is, is are they doing this, you know, what, what's the agent, their own agency in it? Are they making these choices? Are they able to, um, decide that, you know, like this guy saying, hey, I love Indonesia. I, I, I'm going to take on my citizenship here and become Indonesian. Um, and, you know, that's uh, Europeans and Americans. They have, you know, I mean, now American passport doesn't work very well because you can't go anywhere because of COVID. But um, normally, you know, having those passports mean you're, you're mobile. 
And I think that's one of the interesting things is that are they mobile or are they exploited? Because that's the other problem. And, you know, we've seen in the COVID situation in China how Africans in general were targeted and blamed for COVID and there could be a backlash. I know in in, um, in India, um, some of the, the football players get abandoned and they feel like, you know, they, they go there with big dreams and, they, and a lot of them think that they're going to end up, you know, they're going to boomerang into Europe. But that is rare. That's rare. That's not going to happen. And you know, people. And in fact, when I when I met the Ghanaians in in Timor, um, they were like, "Can you help me get a contract in Europe?" <laughs> you know, I'm like, ah, you know, that's not my job. But but I there is that. Uh, um, unless they're being paid really well and find their own life, they may just think of it as a as a a, a way station before going someplace else. Um, I think we've lost Zabula for a minute. So I let me let me. Just kind of make the transition to to talk about women's about the women's game, um, Marta. So one of the things I think that's quite striking is um, that the last World Cup, right, uh, for a lot of people, represent like a sea change in the way that women's football is being experienced, is being perceived. Why do you think? And I and I think I saw a number this morning that uh, a billion people watched the World Cup in mm -hmm. France. It was like mm -hmm. the one World Cup where people look like finally paying yeah. attention to the tension, you know, everybody's watching. Mm -hmm. Why, what do you think happened? Why did, I mean, just in general, mm -hmm. not, not specifically about the African question, but women's football in general, um, what happened to the women's game that it, that suddenly there was this, just like we felt that there was a change to the way that we were experiencing it? Mm -hmm. Um, well, in general, I would say that it's not a sudden thing that it, it raises. It's it's over time, and there's excitement. Um, there's a lot of young um, boys and girls who get excited about it. Um, I will also have to say, you know, um, Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino, the American team, they're very charismatic and you know drawn a lot of people. And then following the other teams was also, um, you know, there there was some, uh, um, you know would somebody dethrone the Americans? And there was this sense that this might actually happen, although it obviously didn't. Um, I was in France though um, for this. And I will say, I mean, whereas in Lyon, um, you know, that, that's women's soccer central right there. But in Paris, it was like, uh, you had to really go out of your way to figure out that there was a women's game, um, that there was a tournament happening. Um, the stadium was exciting and all that, but, um, you know, so there was, it was a bit of a mixed thing in terms of how many people noticed it. Um, but I, I do think that, uh, you know, um, partly because people are able to watch it around the world, um, it's also, and, uh, you know, people are, were able to go, um, and I know for me over the years, I try to go to at least one game in every single Women's World Cup. Um, it's getting harder to get tickets. So, so there is more of a popularity and people find um, people want to get there and, and, and you know, getting to now the next one in, you know, Australia, New Zealand, um, it'll be really interesting. You know, it's going to be expensive to get there, but um, we'll see how, how many people end up going. You know, I want to look at African women's football in it. And, um, you know, there's some progress being made in terms of world football, but, you know, still, I mean, the Nigerians are the best um, and they're ranked the highest globally. Um, Cameroonians, South Africans, Ghanaians are up there. But it's it's uh, you know basically those teams. Um, Equatorial Guinea did really well for a while. They do have some good locally grown players, but of course Equatorial Guinea did well partly because they brought in Brazilian players and made them citizens. So um, in twenty. Uh, 
in 2015 in the Women's World Cup when it was in Germany. I was there and I actually went to one of the games um, and it was Equatorial Guinea playing and and yeah, a lot of the players were Brazilian. Um, they were Afro-Brazilian. Um, so that's another interesting whole thing. But um, yeah, so, um, but I, 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 I will say that over the years that I've been looking at women's football in the continent of Africa, I think that the success of women's football in general, and, and you know, I'll, I'll say success with, there's a lot of caveats. I mean, you see the most successful team, the women, American women's team still has, has this court case, which they lost, you know? So, um, you know, the Australian team went on strike, the, you know, uh, all of these, it's really hard. I think the uh, Icelandic, uh, they're the ones that, you know, they have the most equity. There's a, uh, um, in New Zealand, they also decided to pay them uh, men and women the same, but it, there's still a big fight um, for equity. And, uh, but um, given this relative success and, and exposure, um, it has made football for women in Africa more possible. And, and here's the thing is, is, you know, football is really marked as masculine, not in the United States, not in Canada, but in the rest of the world, football is marked as masculine. Um, maybe not China, but <laughs> everywhere else. Um, so, so, you know, if a woman is athletic at all, uh, she can play volleyball, even basketball. Um, you know, in Senegal, basketball is really popular. But if women play football, um, there is a, a, you know, an ongoing um, undermining of, uh, of, you know, who they are. Why are you making this choice? You're, you're going to become masculine. You, maybe you're a lesbian, you know. Um, there's something wrong. And it's scary for men. And, you know, this isn't just an, it's not an African thing. Um, there, there's definitely, it goes way back and in some, some place this may be imported by, you know, the English, the English did not invent football, but they, they did a lot to around the world or in terms of football. And they were the ones that in 1921 banned it. And then the ban went on for, you know, 50 years. And, um, I had found, um, and this is my theory. So for instance, in, um, uh, 2000, when some of the states in Nigeria, um, the it, so Nigeria is a, a federal country, some of the states um, adopted Sharia law in the north. And they one of the things that they did was to immediately ban women's football. And, and some people were like, oh, God, you know, like these Muslims, what they're doing. And I'm like, no, I don't think that they got that from the Islam. I think that they got it from the English because the English had decided that women's playing football was somehow... Um, you know, uh, it was it was uh, unfeminine and a threat to masculinity. Um, and it was in England, it was a threat to the the um, uh, the the monetary success of the men's game because the women's game was so successful back in the 20s. And, and so they were bringing in big, huge crowds. Um, and in fact, uh, there are some that have actually said that FIFA should pay reparations to women's football because of all the, the fact that the ban that started in England and that went to many, like in Brazil and other places, there were ban that it it basically had prevented women's football from developing. So there is that. Now, um, uh, we have just this month, um, CAF, um, the Confederation, the African Confederation, has released their their strategy, women's football strategy, for, for the next four years. The hashtag is it's. 
time, it's now. And they propose that they're going to do a lot to invest um, and develop competitions. They're going to develop in a zonal way. So they're going to focus on zonal aspects of um, competition, bring professionalization, leadership, um, to have more marketing, maybe more streaming of games or something, um, training referees, training coaches. And then social impact, which is, you know, everybody wants to um, have sports save the world. So there's going to be social impact there, too. So it, it'll be this was just announced. Um, we shall see, you know, uh, uh, several years ago when I was doing research on women's football, I um, Kath had an email address. I wrote to them and I said, hey, do, what do you have in your archives on women's archives football? Are- and the answer was nothing. <laughs> nothing you know forget it don't even bother coming you know there's nothing here so hopefully you know this is actually they're going to actually do something but we'll see that's such a i mean you've that was a very comprehensive answer you've given us quite a lot to chew on there but one thing that i i got struck by as you were talking and as we proceed with this discussion is that when we think about measuring the success of women's football we often think about women's football on the international stage So we think about the World Cup and how successful national teams are doing. We think about the U.S. women's team. And it seems to me that part of the question of, well, how do we develop women's football is trying to to develop it at the grassroots, at the academy level, onto the community club level, and then onto the professional club level. And when it comes to thinking about women's football at the professional club level, it's I'm, I'm, I'm amazed by, first of all, how very little I know about that, which I think is just indicative of the way footballing uh, spectatorship happens in the world today. Uh, I, I'm partial to men's football, and that is a problem. And then when it comes to interrogating that problem and thinking about you know, women's footballing teams to support and follow, it's interesting to me that the, the prevailing model at the moment is for women's club football teams to be sort of companions to the men's teams. So you have Arsenal women's football, you have Arsenal men's and you have Arsenal women's football team, you have Barcelona men's and then you have Barcelona feminine. So in the last couple of years, it does seem like there's there's a push for these clubs to prioritize the development of their their women's teams. But sometimes I wonder if that's that's an effective way of, of bringing popularity to to the women's game, uh, does that undercut the, the the prospects of success for those teams? Because they're still they're still so conditioned by the success and popularity of the men's teams. Um, and I mean, Njabula, I'm also interested to hear what you think about about what's the state of, of women's club football in South Africa. Um, because one thing I think about when I think about uh, women's sports, which seem to be sort of successful and thriving. I always think of the WNBA in the United States and and all of those teams have like the, an independent identity. They're not associated or sort of like add-ons to the men's teams. They're their own self-contained sporting brands and associations and, and seem to be doing well. And there's a lot of interest that's growing uh, that has been there and it's only increasing with, with, with women's basketball and not women's basketball only at the national level, but at the club competitive level. So... Mm-hmm. I'm interested to hear what you think about about that. And, and that's the same, by the way, with uh, women's women's soccer in the U.S. Um, all the club teams also have all their own identities. Historically, mm-hmm. it's never been an extension of uh, men's teams. So it may it may say something about sexism in in in, in European club football. 
kind of about the way they organize. I don't think this, even in South Africa, even on the African continent where club teams exist, and I know the South African deal very well, which is not that well organized, but even there, I think it's not like Kaiser Chiefs ladies, you know, the way that Barcelona, mm. Femini, whatever, uh, develops. Um, it's actually, it's, the, the club names are actually unique. They're their own unique club names rather than extension um, of, of the of the men's team. Yeah, you wanted to, you were going to say something, uh, Martha? Um, yeah, this is always an interesting question. You know, should the should the women's uh, fate be <laughs> attached to the men's fate? You know, if um, and, and this is, uh, you know, with FIFA, actually, um, they have made some demands that if you're going to have a national team, if you're going to get these development funds, you have to have a women's side. Now, for they've had that for a long time. It hasn't always worked or there's been corruption and the money hasn't gone to where it's supposed to go um, for the youth and the women's side. But I think that there there is a, a, a renewed pressure. And, and to some extent, um, many of the national associations do pay attention because FIFA says, you know, you got to do it. So now if CAF is actually also um, putting some money behind it, um, you know, then then it there may be something there. Now, in terms of clubs, um, I would I would say I agree with you that the, from um, well, there may be a difference in Anglophone, Francophone difference on the, on the continent. Um, and I'm not the Lusophone. I don't know. I'd have to look into that a little bit more about uh, the options there. But the um, there does seem to be more on the Anglophone side, independent women's teams. Um, and, and the Francophone side, as I mentioned, there are these, you know, uh, multi-sport clubs and they are supposed to have men's and women's sides. Um, I know that in Senegal that football was in many of those clubs they didn't have. So when they did start women's teams, they were actually were separate clubs. They still had to register under the same laws and become a similar kind of multi-sport club, although they might just do women's football. <laughs> but, um, uh, you know, so this, um, you know, if 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 there's real commitment from a men's side to help, like I think in Manchester city, they, you know, like they indicate that there is, you know, like a real commitment to the women's side and, um, or in Iceland, it's, it's actually equal. Like, you know, who's benefiting the men are benefiting from the women, the women are benefiting from the men. It's like integrated. Um, but I think that, uh, uh, you know, again, you have to be intentional on the women's and you can't just expect that they're going to crumbs are going to come from the men's side. To help the women's side, um, and you know, with with a lot of the women's um, clubs and teams that I'm familiar with, so I'll mention uh, moving the goal goalposts. They're a um, a league uh, that and and a project that has started out in Khalifi, Kenya, twenty odd years now. And yes, they do have a social um, uh, goal. You know, they want to improve lives for for young women. And but they've also started a league and they become so successful and they do have a super team and many of their players are now on the national team um, and have gone international. So, you know, they, they are, you know, building up that thing. It was interesting in Khalifi is that they were so successful. The boys were asking to join. The boys wanted to join. And so they're and they're like, wow, you know, great. We have this thing. We have a women's started club and a women's started league and we can bring the boys in. Um, yes, moving the goalposts. They're great. And the other thing that they do is is that they, they actually work on toxic masculinity. Um, they have sessions with fathers to talk about, you know, what does it mean to raise girls? You know, so they are not afraid to tackle these big issues and to play really good football. They, they really understand the game of football um, and they are developing the, the girls. So um, they have the train the trainer, you know, train the coach, train the referee kind of model. So, so again, this is part of the decolonization. That's maybe you know uh, the feminist thing of just 
you know, do it yourself and do it really well. Mm, right. Um, I think we've lost we we've lost Nzabula a couple of times, which I've which I'm kind of sad about, but he's back now. Yeah. Um, and I'm wondering if he wants to make a comment. We're talking Nzabula about oh he's he's here. I think we've lost him again. Um well while he's um while he's uh will will actually do you want to ask your question quickly will because i have a, i have a, I, w- I want to ask i want to go back to that question about equatorial guinea and the afro brazilians but before be, before i ask that will you wanted to ask a question about the the pay discrimination just oh, because yeah. I, and i wanted to know when you ask that question if you could maybe hone in i mean i'm being sort of optimistic about how that plays out in africa but anyway go ahead yeah. So, yeah, you mentioned, um, Martha, the, the, the lawsuits uh, that the U.S. women's soccer team brought against the U.S. Soccer Federation. And it was decided earlier this year, if I'm not mistaken, in May. And I mean, the reason that defeat attracted a lot of international attention is that it was viewed as being this symbolic setback on the road towards pay parity between men's and women's football, but also men's and women's sports generally. But I mean, what I, what I found interesting about that case in, in sort of scrutinizing the details behind it is that it drew attention to the different compensation systems between men's and women's football. And maybe, maybe I'm, I'm fudging the details of it, but as far as I recall, the men's football team gets paid on a model which is uh, sort of pay for play, right? You get paid according to your individual performances and how well you do in them. And maybe that's an effect of commercialization. I don't know. But the, the women's team has a pay structure which includes sort of more pay security and it's in the form of negotiated annual salaries, so much more traditional pay structure. And when I was, you know, when I was sort of following this case, I thought to myself, well, first of all, there is a pay gap that needs to be rectified. But in terms of thinking about how do we come to a uniform system where there is an equality of pay, it seems to me like the the men's pay structure should be more like the women's pay structure in terms of providing more, you know, income security um, rather than being this sort of commercial model where it's precarious and your fate depends on how well you do and whether or not you're separately able to negotiate um, sponsorship deals and, and be responsible basically for, for generating your own income rather than your employer um, paying you a salary and doing so consistently with all of the benefits that any employee gets and bringing every single player in the federation to that level and paying them equally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a, maybe a very different discussion. And I've just recently have learned of an organization called Global Athlete and basically trying to bring athletes' voices into these kinds of negotiations. So I think, um, you know, it is something and maybe maybe the women's side uh, has, you know, has a little bit of the uh, um, the answer for everybody, um, you know. So and I, I think Nadja Bullet is back. So maybe in the last minute or so, does he need to have an opportunity to... Um, Say something. You can go ahead answering um, and this question, I mean, about this case and telling us more about it while, while Njabula gets back. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
uh, the, the pay scales and all that. I mean, I think in terms of the African continent, I mean, for women to be paid at all would be great, you know? So I think in South Africa, it's happened in um, that there has been a Sassel League has paid some women um, in Nigeria, it happens. But um, for most, the most part, it's, uh, I think women, women play, are amateurs. Um, if they are on the national team, they may get some compensation. Um, I was in uh, Ethiopia in 2011, and the the national women's team was um, had an opportunity to go to the Olympics, and it was great that the federation um, uh, had two months worth of support for them, and they went off to camp. They they ended up losing to South Africa, um, but it was really when I met with the federation, they were they were all in behind supporting the women, and then there was a nascent um, semi professional league, and women basically um, would get enough to you know. Uh, to pay, I don't know, for, for rent for a month or two. Um, but, but if they had other jobs, it was, it was uh, good for them to just have a little bit more money. And, and without that money, they probably couldn't stay in the urban areas where the, where the games were. So, um, I, you know, this is a complicated thing of, of pay for athletes and, and how, how the money is generated. And, um, is it come from sponsorship? Is it come from gate receipts? Um, obviously if you can have TV rights, that's the big one, but We've even seen in European football how so unfair it is. And I guess what the biggest, one of the biggest men's game is happening right now to see between uh, what Fulham and Brentwood, who gets into the the Premier League. And it's, uh, I think, the biggest money game because of the stakes there. And that comes from, you know, a lot of the TV rights and other things that come from a men's team being in the Premier League and the English Premier League. And, you know, just... um, is that fair <laughs> when you look at it? And, and, and the COVID situation all around the world has brought up all these financial issues around teams and and uh, whether teams are going to go under, you know, as you start going, even in the rich leagues, as you start going down, there's there's so much precarity. Precarity, that's the big question. And it's, it's not just in football or sport, it's all over the place. We have so many people in precarious situations around the world right now. So let me, I'm going to ask the last question because I know you, we've kept you here for an hour. It's, it's, and we apologize for all the technical difficulties. Ibn Jabulu is here. I'd like to hear his answer on this question. So bear with me. I just want to set it up. So earlier, Will and I, before the program, we were sort of just talking about this. And this is the question about football and the nation. So as Africans, Africans always get excited when, say, Paul Pogba, you know, who's of Guinean descent or whoever, ends up playing in France's national teams and people have constructed mm-hmm. arguments around that. You have arguments about how the English team increasingly is not the same English team of kind of, you know, the Bulldog and St. George. It's now Raheem Sterling and, you know, a number of um, black players. And one of the things that always stri- that's always for me, I think quite striking is how that same kind of politics doesn't, is so we want that for, for when we're thinking, oh, we want European, I don't want to turn the word decolonize again. We want European football to be more receptive and more representative of the people who live in them and that everybody gets an equal chance to play. Yet in African teams, and I can't think, I think there's one exception which I will mention. It's actually in the women's game. It's very rare for a Zimbabwean footballer who may have grown up in South Africa to play for the South African national team or for uh, Ghana, maybe I'm, I could be wrong about that, to have some Niger- a player of Nigerian parentage playing the Ghanaian team. This seems, I think you see you see this with Cameroon, but this would be uh, the great, um, I forgot his name, who played it um, at Arsenal. I think his family was from Ukatoro, Guinea Laurent, 
Lauren, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. but you don't see this. You don't see, you don't see like South Africa taking on the children of Congolese refugees, immigrants, Nigerian immigrants, their children ending up playing for the South African national team. The one exception that I know about is, and I've always wanted to write about this, is you have in the South African women's team, one of the team members is a is a is the daughter of Congolese refugees. And I think a picture was actually on the screen a couple of minutes ago, um, who plays in the in the in the South African team. Her name is um I had it in my notes, um Ode Fulutudlia. I think she's a midfielder, kind of defensive midfielder. But in any case, I wanted to ask you about that. And and I'm asking this because you made that sort of you you know, we were all sort of laughing at the at the at the Equatorial Guinean uh, mm -hmm. thing to bring in these Afro-Brazilians. I mean, I I'm not sure I, I'm I was like, okay, why not? Tunisia's had like Brazilians. Um we want that kind of thing for Europe, but why don't we want that for ourselves? I'm always kind of like conflicted about that. Maybe if either of you, who, if, I'm not sure if Jabula is still here, but Marta, if you could maybe start us off while we figure out if he's still on. Like, how do you react to that? How, how, do, you, how do you enter that debate? Or how do you think we can, what's the, the yeah. a good way to enter that debate? Uh, that's that's a good one for Africans to have to really um, confront. Um, I mean, when when people um, say that you can't run for president because you, your grandparents weren't from this country, um, you know, it's interesting how colonial boundaries have taken over the imagination of nationalism, and um, that you know, so so on a on a football side, um, you know, if uh, I, I think money talks, and and like the case of Equatorial Guinea, you know, yes. Um, if you can buy the players, and and in fact, I will say, um, Timor um, did that too. They they bought some, they brought in some players from Brazil, and then they got in trouble for it for a while. And so, um, it's uh, um, definitely that that's the on the men's side, but um, the the you know what does it mean to be a citizen of your country? Um, and you know, obviously, South Africa has a huge issue with with xenophobia um, right now. And, you know, I know people who were refugees in South Africa from other um, from other countries who ended up coming to the United States as bad as things are here for immigrants right now. You know, they they've they got they got political asylum and citizenship in the United States when, when they couldn't get that in South Africa. Um, you know, and other I mean, there's you know, I don't know, Uganda might be an interesting place to look and, and see what happens with the women's team there, because Uganda does invite a lot of refugees. I don't know. I, I will say I also I do work with Soccer Without Borders. I'm on the national board, so I have to say that. But they have a great program in Kampala for refugees, and they're doing a lot of work on the women's side as well. Um, the global the global goal five for gender equity is something that they've taken seriously to heart. So they're training coaches, they're training um uh, referees and all that. And so, you know, these sorts of things that sooner or later, to, you know, if some of those refugees end up getting citizenship for Uganda, and sometimes sporting citizenship is different than your past, you know, like, I mean, there's different levels. So, um, but who knows, in a couple of years, you may have um, refugees from other countries representing the Uganda national team, um, you know, and, and this is the, you know, if people want to win, they do it. Um, you know, one way or the other. Right. Um, I think, yeah, I think um, in most other sports, they're already allowing this. And it might be because of the, the idiosyncratic way that football is being organized, like your grandmother 
you have a distant grandmother or something or your mm -hmm. father mother's from a place and then you can play for that national team so for example you know we mentioned earlier like in rugby uh you can be from tonga have no relationship mm -hmm. to england play for england you could be zimbabwean and play for south mm -hmm. africa mm -hmm. um you have like uh, track and field athletes who run for for um many of that that's lauren by the way mm -hmm. who runs yeah. for uh for uh some of the gulf you know princedom they they've former nigerians i think there's a sprinter currently i think she was just um in trouble for doping where she couldn't say where she was um she's originally from nigeria she has i think the 100 meter or 200 meter record and she uh you know she's she's nigerian but i think she's running for bahrain so that's that's happening in other sports but i find it curious that it's not happening in football and i also find it very curious that while africans we want that for our for our athletes as you said it's where i can go play to be able to do that in bahrain to be able to do that in qatar to do it in france but for some strange reason mm -hmm. Uh, we're very, um, our national borders prevents us for like saying, hey, what if I was from, I don't know, Sierra Leone and I end up playing, I, I lived all my life in a refugee camp in Cote d'Ivoire and I, I'm so good that Cote d'Ivoire picks me. It seems that there's like, there's a weird thing. And I I mean, again, I'm speaking from a South African experience, but I do feel that that's, that's always been a, a problem. Right, right. Yeah, I will say basketball is happening too. I mean, if you look at the Nigerian women's basketball team, a lot of them are Nigerian Americans. Um, and in Senegal, there was a Malay, uh, a player from Mali who, um, and anyway, so, you know, like there are some movements around in basketball. Um, so maybe in football, you know, and, and again, if, you know, somebody who has enough power decides that these players are the ones that they want and they're going to win with it, you know, um, you, it could happen. We could see, you know, um, we have so, we have a lot of Ghanaian American, Nigerian American soccer players in the United States who might go play football <laughs> for their parents' countries. So we'll see. I think on that note, we don't want to keep you any longer. We want to apologize to our viewers for all the technical difficulties. This happens yeah. when you do. When it's you the do internet, life. internet it's electricity. Easy. I mean, this is the reality of the African continent, you know, and but, even the United yeah. States. We run. We we have problems. <laughs> We we have electrical problems here in California when we the fire season's starting. It's and been my, it's been a couple of weeks where it was like my internet that was like the worst internet of the whole group mm -hmm. and the, the person yeah. in Johannesburg or, or Lagos have like great internet and then I struggle. But um, you've been great, Martha. I mean, um, from the comments on Twitter and and uh, the the other various social media, um, you nothing but praise for your knowledge about the game. Um, and I, and I, I think they mean it like for real, real. They were like, you know, she knows her stuff. So this, this was wonderful. And um, maybe one of these days, um, I, maybe if I'm in the Bay Area, I still try my 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 luck at playing football. I'm not as good as I well, I was never <laughs> good. I don't want to say I'm good because somebody might be listening and say, I know him when he played in Cape Town and he was terrible. So <laughs> I think I got better as I got older. That's probably yeah, what yeah, I'm yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, I'm. Uh, yeah, my knees. I I do worry about my knees. I still run a lot, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I I do love kicking a ball around. But last, I, I will say, yeah, I will say the the last time I played a game was in Zambia. We played a pickup game um, after the African Sport Conference, and so 
Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna come to that conference. I know about these infamous pickup games at the end of the at the the end of the sports Africa conferences. Mm -hmm. Um and I also know that some of this is a this is maybe a little obscure for Will. This is the professors and the PhD <laughs> students yeah. when they go to these African studies conferences. There's actually always a game. Um <laughs> I I was gonna play at one, but I kind of mess up the time. Um, but I really want to play in that game because I can yeah. still show up a little chip. I can still show up my little chip. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, yeah. this was this okay. was great. And we want to thank you for being here. So I want to thank my uh, thank our guest Marta Saavedra. Um, Maher, it seems in the end uh, the the technical problems could not be overcome. Um, and Tunja Bulongiri, who sold it on, like come, he came in and out. I apologize. Um, he he's a great football journalist and. Since he wasn't here, I really want to recommend people check out the new frame, which is the publication where he's, um, I think, I'm not sure if he's the sports editor, but they've been sports. doing great. Yeah. And I wanted to mention they did a really, they, they do really good podcast. And one of them is a really special one where they where they go into detail a little bit about Franz Fanon and his uh, football, like how he was, his whole football stuff. Like mm -hmm. Nigel Gibson, the scholar of Fanon, they brought him in. And they told, I think Fanon played on the wing, which apparently is a metaphor for something. Um, so <laughs> yeah, yeah. people go listen to the new frame. It's based in Johannesburg, a great publication. And I will punt again, Maher's um, YouTube channel, which is really good because that question about why aren't there African coaches in Europe? Uh, yeah, there's the, the, on the screen, you can see the episode mm -hmm. on Fanon, which I can definitely recommend. Um, and also, um, the last pitch, the last sort of uh, uh, little shout out is Marta's, the program Marta was mentioning, which we talked about right before we came on air, uh, the, the Sports Africa, um, I think it's our monthly uh, pop, uh, live session, session, which interestingly uh, about it, I think this was like, you know, it's almost like, it's like COVID made that happen and now it's a thing. And it's yeah. an incredible series. You can look at the archive of it, it's online. Um, uh, with, um, with I was mentioning the, before, sorry, yeah, go ahead, Martha. Oh, I was just going to say the next one is on August eighth, and it's about South South cooperation. We're going to talk to sport officers or um, who were trained in Cuba, who then have gone back to different African countries to develop sport in their countries. So, um, so it's yeah. Um, so just go to Sport Africa. Decolonizing, decolonizing yeah. sport. We got yeah, absolutely. <laughs> say that again, Will. It's always the Cubans where we where we get it's the It's always the Cuban. It's always the Cuban. <laughs> On that note, so thank you to our producer, um, Antoinette Engel, and to my co-presenter, Will Shoki. I'm Sean Jacobs. Um, I was going to say, once a pirate, always a pirate. <laughs> yeah. Goodbye. All right. Bye. Thanks. Bye-bye.